Welcome back. This is the last episode of this six-week course on faith and politics. And what I want to do to wrap up is talk about how we can engage politics as Christians in a way that ultimately not only glorifies God and advances his kingdom, but brings us together as Christians, while at the same time helping us to fully live out our Christian principles without compromise. And the way that we do that is by changing our approach to politics into an approach that is more consistent with what I would say is sort of a gospel-centered, biblical approach to how we engage politics. Now, there's good news and bad news in how we do this. The good news is that as Christians, we have an advantage because we are naturally predisposed to communicate in the way that I'm about to describe. The bad news is that everything in our current political moment tugs us away from this type of communication. And the distinction that I want to emphasize here is a distinction between persuasion and self-expression. The first thing that we have to keep in mind as we're thinking about how to have a good political argument is whether we should. And actually, one of the big challenges to politics right now um, is the idea that, in fact, it's not worth having discussions with people who don't agree with you. There's been a big push um, to say that, no, the problem isn't that we have um, these conversations, right? The problem isn't that that we need to persuade these people. The problem is the people who disagree with us. Uh, They're unpersuadable. They're irredeemable. Um, From a Christian perspective, we could sort of look at this as um, almost a a weird, bizarre political form of the doctrine of election. Um, You know, those who agree with us are the eternally saved, and those who disagree with us are the eternally damned and reprobate. And that's kind of a mode that we're seeing express itself in politics to a large degree. Um, You've seen attacks on the idea of civility from the left and the right. Um, I've had hard, hardcore conservatives say the problem is that we're too nice to liberals. I've had liberals tell me that civility is a right-wing word. Okay, both of those things scare me as an American because that means that we're now more concerned with what we believe and with who that says about who we are than we are with actually trying to persuade one another of the rightness of our cause. And so that is the danger. That's the challenge that we face. That's the headwind that you face as a Christian if, you're, if we're trying to do this. So why should we, first of all, have good political arguments? I think a lot of it comes back to everything we've been talking about this week. We have a fundamental understanding that every human being is made in the image of God. Every human being has a certain intrinsic dignity as a result of that. That idea of human dignity as a, as a universal is a core fundamental Christian principle that we've discussed over and over again, whether it's on the issue of life, on the issue of of liberty of conscience, on the issue of the preferential option for the poor, on the issue of loving your neighbor for the common good. All of these things come back to that Christian anthropology that we discussed in one, right? So the the basic point number one from, from this, from a Christian perspective is who we are as image bearers of God 
necessitates that we treat each other in a certain way, even in the realm of politics. And it necessitates that we engage the individual and not the abstraction, that we engage the person sitting across from us, not the abstract set of ideas for whom they have become a stand-in in our lives, right? So that's the first challenge that we have is that you have to deal with the person that's in front of you and not treat them as sort of like a totem for everything that you don't like about the other side in politics. And that's the basic aspect of Christians. And we have to engage this way because this is our understanding of the world necessitates this. That we, can't re we cannot objectify people. And when we reduce people down to a series of opinions or beliefs or abstract ideas, then we are objectifying them. And we can't do that as Christians. That's not how we're supposed to approach our fellow image bearers or fellow immortals who are made in the image of God. Okay, so that's from the individual perspective. The other thing is from a Christian perspective, um, we are accountable to a higher power. The way we speak, the way we interact, all of that, we are accountable to a higher power, and that is Christ. Uh, and just as we are stewards of the gospel, uh, engaging in politics, we're also stewards of that kingdom work. So the way that we engage in politics has a direct bearing on the perception that people have of Christ. When we are doing this, even when we are engaging in political discussions, we are still ambassadors for Christ. Uh, and that's just as true if we're talking to other Christians as if we're talking to non-Christians. So that's another reason that we should. The other reason, frankly, and, and the third reason is that it's more effective. What I'm about to tell you in terms of how to have a political argument is just more effective. And it's, again, as Christians, as I said last week, we want to solve the issue, not have the issue. We really want to try to make things better. We don't want to just have the issue as a way of sort of mobilizing people politically. So if we're going to do that, we want to be effective at it. Okay. Um, I was doing a similar podcast actually for my, my blind politics, and I used an analogy that I think is going to make sense to, to you um, as you're listening to this, and hopefully it will make sense to my more general audience as well, right? If you're having a conversation with someone about Jesus and you want to bring them to the gospel and you want to share the gospel with them, probably most of the time the way you lead off that conversation is not, hi, nice to meet you. Did you know that you're going to hell? And if you don't want to go to hell, you need to change your life completely to live your life the way I live my life. Right? We wouldn't do that as Christians when we're talking about the gospel. Okay, so it would be inconsistent for us to do that when we're talking about politics. So if we start from the assumption that somebody who disagrees with us politically is a bad person, we're implicitly saying the same kind of thing, the same category, making the same category of statement. And it's not very effective if you're preaching the gospel. I can tell you it's also not that effective in politics. So that's not really where we want to lead off. Now, the temptation here, and this is the last point that I'll, I'll make on why we should have a political argument, because the, the, the temptation uh, that, we are, that I'm seeing, and I, I hope that as you listen to this and, and you hear this, you're, you're saying, you're recognizing that you see it too all around you. I'm hoping that you don't recognize it in your, in your own political behavior. Um, I think to all of us, to a certain extent, this is going to be a little bit convicting, myself included, is that we have a tendency to sometimes look at politics less from the perspective of persuading other people and more from the perspective of self-expression. We want our politics to reflect something and say something about who we are. Um, and to be sort of intrinsically tied in to our identity. 
And so politics then becomes a way of sort of magnifying our identity and our conception of who we are and sort of imposing that on the realm of politics and the realm of the country. Uh, there's a fancy Christian word for that. We've talked about it again a lot in the past in this, and it's called idolatry. It's the idolatry of self, right? Um, if we if we take politics as self-expression, if we see politics as primarily saying something about me and about who I am, then we are putting ourselves at the center. And that's a very dangerous form of idolatry. It's It's one of the most common and most dangerous forms that we see in society today. And it's not the point. It's not how we are supposed to engage. I want to juxtapose that idea of self-expression against um, a passage from St. Paul uh, that I think is, is fairly famous um, and often misunderstood, uh, where Paul says, I can be all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I can be all things to all people that by all means I might save some. And before that, he says to the Jews, a Jew. To the Greeks, a Greek. To the Gentiles, a Gentile. Uh, you know, to, to the, the, the righteous, a man of the law. And he goes through this list of things that he, that he has made himself. And he says, I, for I can be all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Okay, there's two components of this that I think are really important in terms of how we do this, how we have a good political argument. The first is, Paul's not expecting the people that he's engaging, that he's preaching the gospel to, to come to him. He's not saying, to hear what I have to say, first, you have to agree with me on everything. He's saying, I'm going to come to you as much as I can. As much as I can, I'm going to come your way. But it's not simply going to meet them where they are for the sake of going to meet them where they are. It's going to meet them where they are so they can so that he can get them to where he is. It's persuasion. Going all the way back to Aristotle, the Greek political philosopher, he says politics is the art of persuasion. And it is. If you break politics down, it, is simply, it essentially is this. We're trying to organize ourselves into societies because we, as individuals, we don't live alone. We're always in groups. And in doing so, we are trying to come together and determine what is the best form of that government, the most just, uh, as we understand it. And then bring other people into accordance with that. And that comes through persuasion. So if we think that politics is about something else, like self-expression, for example, we're not doing politics the way politics is meant to be done. It's meant to be persuasive. We are meant to persuade. So how do we persuade? Well, if you're going to try to persuade somebody, you want to persuade them of as little as possible, <laughs> right? Um, you don't want to work any harder to persuade somebody than you have to. What I mean by that is you keep the main thing, the main thing. Okay. When you're going to preach some, to preach to somebody, the gospel. All right. And if you're going to, um, let's just say to use an example from when I was a, when I was a, a young man in youth group and the youth group of course had a skate park. And so they're trying to reach out to the po to folks that are skaters, right. And, and the punks and, and so on and so forth. You don't start out by telling these people, young man, you need to put a suit on, right? Because that's not essential to preaching the gospel. We focus on the main thing. You keep the main thing, the main thing. So if you're trying to persuade somebody, the first thing that you need to do is you need to know a lot about them. Probably you need to have a personal relationship. Honestly, if you're going to have an effective political conversation, you need to have a personal relationship or a relationship in which there is 
enough common ground that you can assume certain things in common. The second thing that you need to do if you're going to persuade somebody, by the way, if you've taken the alpha course, hopefully a lot, of, or, or the courses that we've done in the past on evangelism, hopefully a lot of this is familiar because the tactics are actually not that dissimilar. The first, the next thing you want to do is you want to ask them a lot of questions. Okay. One of the things that is the most um, problematic when we try to have political discussions is that we're often not talking about the same thing. Um, and you can, you can have three different people that see the same event or the same thing, and they all perceive it in a different way. And that, that, that shared experience perceived differently can create barriers to actually engaging in political conversation. So the first thing that you have to do is you say, okay, we're talking about this issue. When you are talking about this issue, what do you see? Okay. So for example, I had recently had a political conversation with somebody and we we're talking about the issue of a more just society. I was like, okay, what does that mean to you? Um, and, and we're talking about the city of the preferential option for the poor. And I said, okay, so, and, and you know, this was just a way of, of kind of getting into it and getting to what we're talking about when we're talking about helping the poor. And the way that I framed the question was, um, if you could be poor in any country in the world, what country would you pick and why? Because it's not just the what country would you pick, but it's also why. What is it about that country that makes you think, I would want to be poor in this country? And that will tell me where you're coming at this question of how do we help the poor? Again, going back to last week, it's a prudential difference. I'm assuming that we all want to help the poor. And to try to discuss this issue from a persuasive perspective, the first thing that you have to find out is... What, in fact, does this person think helping the poor means? Because oftentimes that is fundamental. If we're talking about these sort of economic issues, we all agree we want an economic system that's going to help people at the bottom to get to be better off. But we don't necessarily agree on how we get there. And the first thing you got to do is figure out where the person's coming from. That's true on basically every political issue. You also want to differentiate and separate out what is an emotion-based argument versus an intellectual argument. You cannot persuade people very as effectively if it's something that's more emotion-based. It's really hard to persuade people when you're talking about feelings. Okay, when we're talking about um, ideas, then we can, we can talk persuasively. It's harder to do that when somebody has taken a position for an emotional reason. So if there's an issue where that per, you know, a person has had an experience that has shaped their perception, on a given issue, it's going to be harder to persuade them on that issue um, if it's if it's primarily an experiential thing. Again, same thing with with evangelism. When somebody says, you know, I I think Christianity hurts people, the the question that you want to say is, okay, why do you think that? Do you think that? And oftentimes, what people tell you is, well, I think that because of all these historical reasons. But then you kind of have to pick through and say, okay, is it actually because? of these, these reasons from, from history and this history that you taught, or is it because you had somebody that you know had a bad experience with a Christian church growing up, right? It's, it's oftentimes the same thing with politics. We have to pick out what is an emotion-based or experience-based um, reasoning versus actually people that are reasoning from ideas. Um, and so that's a challenging thing, but it's, it's important as we're talking about these um, areas of politics. I would say if you're trying to have political conversations, Probably you want to start with the issues that people are less in, in emotionally invested in, 
um, start with the issues where it really is something that they're thinking about from that, you know, uh, logic prudential perspective. And if there is an experience, so here's here's an example of this, um, where I think things get get crossed up. Okay, you can have an emotion about something that's a, a secondary issue, right? Um, and that can change the way that you perceive the primary issue. So if there's a secondary issue, okay, that someone is 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 sort of tied into the primary issue, then you want to decouple that. Okay, I'll give you a good example. A lot of people have a lot of feelings about um, the recent NFL protests in terms of, of kneeling or standing in the national anthem and all that kind of stuff. And a lot of those feelings actually have nothing to do with the issue of policing and police reform. So if that is an issue that's coming up and, and that's triggering something from, like, from an emotional perspective, you need to decouple that because it's actually not primary to the issue that you're trying to talk about, which is, look, here are these things that are going on. We need to reform them. Okay. And this is just a way of sort of, again, you're trying to persuade empathetically. You're putting yourself in the shoes of that person. And if they're saying, my perception is, my feeling is, when this happens, I feel this way, you're not going to argue them out of that feeling. Don't try. Figure out if that is something that can be decoupled from the broader issue, right? So this is, and, and don't tell people, by the way, well, your feeling's not right because that's not what that person intended. Like, you're not going to get anywhere that way. I mean, you can tell them, well, here's the intention that these people had. But if that's not the primary issue that you're talking about, just move away from it. Move around it. Um, and say, okay, well, you know, let's let's decouple that. Let's step back from that. Let's, let's decouple that. Um, you, you don't tend to get somewhere by arguing about people's feelings. Um, and, and the only thing you're going to do there is, is make people angry. So again, um, try to decouple the secondary issue from the primary issue and make sure that you're discussing the primary issue when, you, when you're doing this. The other thing is understand the framework that people have. Um, understand the approach that they have. And if you're trying to argue for your position, because again, the purpose is to persuade, you want to persuade that person that in fact, um, the position that is being held is not, that you hold, is not inconsistent with their broader framework. Okay. Um, one of the frustrations, so I, one of the issues that we've talked about a lot in the discussions is the environment. Um, one of the frustrations that I have, and I've, I've expressed this to a number of folks who are more, you know, environmentally involved or, or whatever. One of the problems that I have as a Christian, when we start talking about the environment, is you, you, you get into these discussions about climate change, environment, all that kind of stuff. And then the next thing you know, you hear somebody and they're talking about, well, and the problem is there are too many people and we need to have, you know, different coercive population control policies and so on and so forth. That's not going to actually get you anywhere with me as a Christian. A better argument from a Christian perspective, why you should care about this is, look, you want to pass on a good environment to your kids, to your grandkids. Um, you know, of course, we're not saying we want to do it in a way that's bad for the economy, but for humans to flourish, we need to have a good environment, a stable climate, so on and so forth, right? So you are not so so from an environmental perspective, you're trying to persuade Christians they should care about the environment. The first thing you got to do is recognize the anthropology, right? Recognize the Christian anthropology. And if your argument is humanity is an invasive species, you're not going to get anywhere with somebody who's motivated by Christian anthropology because I'm turning you off at that point. I don't share that anthropology. I don't think humanity is an invasive species. I think we're made in the image of God, and that's kind of important. 
So again, it's you have to, you're not going to persuade people unless you recognize that there is a validity in that concern. On the other hand, if you're talking to somebody who's not a Christian about the environment, they're very concerned about ecological diversity and, and so on and so forth, then you know, making making arguments saying, okay, look, yeah, that that is important. These are things that we value. Um making the argument that actually when when there's human flourishing, um, that tends to be better for ecology. And there are ways to make that argument. But you have to, again, sympathetically phrasing things in such a way that you're saying, look, your framework is legit. Your the, the way you think about these issues is legitimate. But we need to discuss the issues that we're talking about here. Um, and, and really what you're trying to persuade them is based on your core values and your core beliefs, you should agree with me. Right. That's how you persuade people. The reason that we need to have these arguments as Christians with each other is because in theory, at least, we should share all of our core values. And if we're focusing on that, we're, we're making the main thing the main thing. We're having these political discussions in a way that really focuses in on what are the core um, areas of that moral framework. Then you're actually able to get somewhere. Because the other thing that you find is in in you know, you trying to persuade them and them trying to persuade you, you actually will sometimes start to think about things in a bit of a different light from a bit of a different perspective. Um, that's beneficial because then we can actually take the strengths from both sides of the argument and come to a synthesis that's, that's beneficial, hopefully. Certainly as Christians, that should be something that we would aspire to. Um, we want to take the best of any culture, any arguments, any position that's out there. We want to take what's good from that and bring that into our framework. Okay, and so part of that is recognizing that there is something good in the framework that people have, in the ideas that people have. And so that's that's kind of where we, we get with this. It's a it's an empathetic perspective, it's a perspective where you're putting yourself in the other person's perspective, in the other person's shoes, and you're trying to persuade them. That's how politics is supposed to work, and that's how we should engage it as Christians. So we'll walk through the logic again. Number one, you need to know the person. Number two, you need to ask questions, find out where they actually are coming from, what the moral framework is. Number three, keep the main thing the main thing. And if you come up with uh, around issues with, with feelings, experience, don't try to persuade them that their feelings and experience are wrong, because you're not going to get anywhere. So work around the issue from that. Um, and if possible, figure out, you know, is this feeling or experience part of that broader moral framework that's motivating people to approach politics? Because everybody has one of those when they're engaging with politics. Everybody's got a moral framework. And since we believe that all human beings are made in the image of God, there, there is something of that image that reflected in the moral framework with which everybody approaches politics. It may be very badly distorted in many cases, but it's always there. And so you want to find that sympathetically, pull that out, and kind of bring that in. And that's that's how we have these discussions from a practical standpoint. Um, we'll get into cases a little bit more, I think, for, for those who attend the discussion when we talk about this. So, you know, um, it, think think as you're, as you're listening to this and thinking through, think about issues that it would be hard to sort of empathetically frame uh, with people that that you might disagree with, and we can sort of talk through some some ways to do that. Um, I think one of the hardest ones, and I'll close with this, one of the hardest issues to really talk about um, right now is one of the issues that we we actually talked about sort of as a church uh, this summer, which is the the sort of race and faith and, and race and racism. It's a difficult issue, 
what I find is that, um, again, there's a lot of talking past that tends to happen in, the, in these conversations. Um, and there's, there's a fundamental, when we look at the United States and, and the, the, the U.S., not just on these issues, but sort of in general, um, we have a, a breakdown. Um, because you, you tend to have people from more conservative perspective tend to approach things from a framework of gratitude, right? Of gratitude for, for the good things that have been received that have come before and a desire to preserve those things. Um, and the more progressive perspective tends to be a little bit, tends to be very focused on justice um, and tends to be focused on the idea of how do we make the future better than now? It's, it's you know, future oriented, it's justice oriented. You need both of those actually in a well-functioning society because gratitude without justice becomes complacency. Justice without gratitude or uh, without gratitude um, becomes sort of a, a, an unachievable utopianism because you're not building on what came before. Uh, and justice, when yoked to ingratitude, can really become a sense of entitlement. So you actually need both in a well-functioning society to balance one another. But when you're talking through these, these issues, um, you know, particularly if you're having these difficult conversations that focus on issues of race and racism and so on and so forth, and you just can't see where the other person's coming from, think about it maybe from the perspective of, are you approaching it from a gratitude perspective and they're approaching it from a justice perspective? Are you approaching it from a justice perspective and they're approaching it from a gratitude perspective? And what I would say is this, if you're approaching from a justice perspective, it probably wouldn't kill you to acknowledge that there are some things to be grateful for and that in fact, the reason that you are pursuing this idea of justice is to to more fully live out the ideals that have been passed down and the values that have been passed down. And I think from a gratitude perspective, particularly from a Christian perspective, it doesn't do any disservice to say that we are grateful for what we've received, but that what we've received is imperfect. In fact, I think as Christians, we always want to say that, right? There's there's no per, there's no perfection short of the return of Christ. So we can acknowledge the good without saying that it's perfect. Um, I think if we keep those two things balanced, we can actually have conversations on the, these issues, even issues of race, that are a lot more productive than some of the conversations that are happening in the broader society. But you have to start by recognizing, look, there is something that is valid in the perspective of the people that you're having these conversations with. So get to an understanding of, here is the good part of what they have and what they believe. And then draw on that in a way that is sympathetic, but that doesn't allow gratitude to become complacent or justice to become, you know, sort of entitled or unrealistic. Um, and those are the challenges when, you, when you're having these types of conversations. And I think that paradigm applies to a lot of uh, the hot button issues that we have. Now, it's really hard to have a, converse, a persuasive conversation like this about who you're going to vote for in the upcoming election. Um, because when, when we talk about, um, a really contentious election like this, it's, it's gotten so brought up in the lens of who we are and who we think we are. It's very difficult to have that persuasive argument. But so if you're in these types of conversations in the limited amount of time that you have before the election or after, the first thing you have to understand is to, to place yourself empathetically in the mindset of somebody who voted for the other person, the person that you didn't vote for. And think through kind of what brings them to that. Why, if you were going to try to make an argument for why you shouldn't vote for the candidate that you support or you should vote for the other candidate, 
what's the argument? How do you make that that argument? What's what's the position there? Because it's only by understanding why people are making the decisions that they're making that you're going to have any hope of trying to persuade them to go the direction that you want them to go. And ultimately, as Christians, that's the purpose of politics. Last point. All of this is based on an ethic of loving our neighbors. Uh, all of this is based on an ethic of, of recognizing um, that politics is mortal. Politics will pass away. Uh, politics is not eternal. There's nothing eternal about politics, but there is something eternal about the people with whom we have these, these conversations, with, with whom we have hopefully good political arguments. Um, a really good political argument you come away with two things, and I, I can say this because I've, I've, I've had good political arguments and bad political arguments. I have lots of them just based on my job. You come away with two things. One, you come away feeling like you've learned something uh, or, or like you have, you know, at least had a sort of an intellectually, you've, you've had a good um, conversation that there, and there's been learning. And two, you come away with an appreciation for the other person. You come away with, with a a deeper um, respect, sometimes even a, a degree of fondness, but just a, a real, a much deeper sense of respect for that other person. Um, if you come away with a political conversation having those things, you probably have done it right. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to persuade them or they're going to persuade you, uh, but you actually have made progress, and that is valuable. As Christians, we need to particularly in times such as these, model what it is like to have friendships across the divides that exist in our society. And these aren't just divides of left and right, red and blue. There are also divides of black and white, of religious and secular, of college-educated, non-college-educated, because that's, that's an increasingly salient political divide, of urban and rural. There's a lot of divides right now in society. Uh, and we as Christians, I think, are called to have friendships across the divide, uh, because what unites us in Christ is more than that. And so this is another way to do that. It is important to form meaningful relationships with Christians who are on the other side of the divide from you on these types of issues. Um, and this is an important aspect of that. It's not necessarily the first aspect. Maybe talk about some uh, lighter and fluffier things before you start getting into the heavy political conversations, but it isn't, it's an important part of our calling. Because faced by the divisions of the world, it's only in Christ that we can hope to bring people together. It's only really in Christ that, that we can have that real, true uh, unity that I think all of us, to a certain extent, are longing for, especially in times like these. And so with that being said, let me close us this evening uh, and close out this session with prayer. I want to thank all of you who've listened to this podcast. I've really enjoyed doing these. I hope that you found them useful, beneficial, uh, not too much pie in the sky, um, and and really that it helps, has helped us all to sort of think through some of these issues in a way that maybe steps back from, from what's going on right now, um, but gives us some tools to really kind of wrestle through what's going on around us. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you tonight recognizing uh, that you are the ultimate source of our hope and that you have fearfully and wonderfully made us in your image to come together 
around you. And Lord, as we engage on issues of politics, as we go forth into yet another contentious election season, help us to be all things to all people, that by all means we might persuade some, and not just to persuade some, Lord, of our own political ideas, but to learn to, to sharpen one another to strengthen one another, to build one another up, even as, as we disagree and seek to persuade, but most of all, to persuade the world of who you are, of your goodness, and of our constant need for you. Lord, help us to be salt and light, even in the realm of politics, and send us out and equip us to do your work and to do your will. And... <clears throat> to bring your truth into these realms and, and into these issues. Father, we pray for our church. We pray for our political leaders. We pray for our spiritual leaders. Help us to walk together even as we are facing uh, these divisions and these, uh, these contentious times. And let us ever more continuously set our hearts and our minds and our eyes on that which matters most, which is walking in your love. All this we ask in your name. Amen.